source of true delight, my unseen adore. Unveil thy beauties to my sight, that I might love thee more. Oh, that I might love thee more. You're listening to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding We're back to uh, Judges after I'm sure was a refreshing break. I haven't got to listen to Ryan and Keith's sermons yet, but I look forward to listening to those. I've heard such great things from uh, the ministry that they've had with us, and we're always so, so thankful to have you guys uh, preach for us. Uh, But we're back in Judges in chapter 8 to continue and finish, actually, uh, the section on Gideon. So, page 207 in your pew Bible, if you don't know where it is, and if you've got your own Bible, it's about seven books in, (laughs) up in the beginning part. Gideon was called by God showed a lot of fear and concern over his ability, and yet God, like he did with Moses, called him and answered his fears and promised that he would attend him and give him success. He destroyed the altar of Baal that was in his hometown, and then with 300 men reduced from the original 32,000, he defeated the Midianites, and that was chapters 6 and 7. And so we take up the rest of the story, and the rest of the story, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 8, begins to turn not so good. Now, you notice that the title of today's sermon is Two Defeats. And the first defeat is the unity of the people of God. And then the second defeat is that of leadership for the people of God. And as an introduction to everything, we, the church, is never really hurt ultimately by outward pressure and decimation, even persecution. Does it really hurt the church? Because the church manifests its love for Christ, and many times it's in persecution where the church makes its greatest gains certainly was true of the early church in the early centuries. In the midst of violent persecution, the church multiplied and ultimately became the dominant force in the Roman Empire. But what destroys the church truly is what happens inside the church, not what happens outside the church. It's when the church suffers disunity. It's when the uh, the church suffers bad leadership. That leads ultimately, as we'll see in this case, to some other form of truth beside the Word of God. That's where bad leadership ultimately leads, either in its example or its actual teaching, to steer people away, either by not giving the example of the Word of God or actually leading them uh, away from the Word of God. So, it's within the body. That's our real danger, it's, it's our own fight with sin. That's the real battle for believers. 
And so this passage hopefully will bring us uh, some help in that regard. So chapter 8, verse 1. Then the men of Ephraim said to him, that is to Gideon, What is this that you've done to us not to call us when you went to fight against Midian? And they accused him fiercely. And he said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Abiezar? We'll explain that, hopefully. I'm sure that makes a lot of sense when you first read it. Uh, God has given into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb, and Zeb. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger against him subsided when he said this. So that's the first threat to unity And and that is disunity from pride. Now we have a second thread of disunity, that of fear, okay? Pride and then fear, which are both rooted in self, either self-promotion or self-protection. But both uh, drive away unity and destroy unity. And Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over. He and the 300 men who were with him, exhausted yet pursuing. We won't have time to deal with that little phrase but that, that you can have a whole sermon based on that, right? <laughs> Exhausted, though pursuing. Exhausted, weary, but we continue to pursue Christ. So he said to the men of Succoth, Please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted. And I'm pursuing after Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. And the officials of Succoth said, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your army? So Gideon said, well, then, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. And from there he went up to Penuel and spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Succoth had answered. And he said to the men of Penuel, when I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. Now, Ziba and Zalmunna were in Karkor with their army, about 15,000 men, all who were left of the army of the people of the east, for they had fallen 120,000 men who drew the sword. This is a little sarcastic because, if you recall, they drew the sword against each other, right, in the rout that had occurred. They actually killed off each other. So there's kind of a sarcasm there, the men who drew the, uh, quote, drew the sword. And Gideon went up by the way of the tent dwellers east of Nobah and Jochebihah and attacked the army, for the army felt secure. And Zeba and Zalmunna fled, and he pursued them and captured the two kings of Midian, Zeba and Zalmunna, and he threw all the army into a panic. So it's the second time he throws their army into a panic, this time in their own territory. Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from the battle by the ascent of Herez, and he captured a young man of Succoth and answered him, and questioned him. And he wrote down for him the officials and elders of Succoth. And uh, there were 77 men. And he came to the men of Succoth and said, Behold, Zeba and Zalmunna, about whom you taunted me, saying, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand that we should give bread to your men who are exhausted? And he took the elders of the city, and he took thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them taught the men of Succoth a lesson. And he broke down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. It may be that the men had holed up in the tower and to fulfill his uh, commitment to tear the tower down, he, he killed the men as well. <clears throat> then he said to Ziba and Zalmunna, Where are the men whom you killed at Tabor? They answered, As you are, so were they. 
Every one of them resemble the son of a king. And he said, they were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. So he said to Jether, his firstborn, rise and kill them. But the young man did not draw a sword, for he was afraid, because he was still a young man. Then Ziba and Zalmunna said, rise yourself and fall upon us, for as the man is, so is his strength. And Gideon rose, arose and killed Ziba and Zalmunna, and he took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of their camels. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And Gideon said to them, Let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the earrings from his spoil. For they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, We will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak, and every man threw in uh, threw, uh, in it the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, and besides the collars that were around the necks of their camels. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city in Ophrah, and all Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more. And the land had rest 40 years in the days of Gideon. Thus the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Lord, bless us as we come to this word. Open up our hearts to it, Lord. Apply it to our lives. May we see more and more of your greatness, your grace, and of the greatness of our Savior Jesus Christ and what he is to us. Oh, bless us, Lord, for your glory we pray. Amen. So, in the first place, there's this disunity come from the pride of Ephraim. You'll find in chapter 12, they come uh, saying very similar thing uh, later. They're concerned to be promoted. They're concerned to have attention. And basically, he pacifies them by complimenting them. And He's very wise here in terms of his leadership. He says, the fact that you have the gleaning, he's calling the gleanings of the harvest what they got to do to the kings of Midian or the the generals of Midian. So he's calling the uh, his own beginning of the harvest, uh, the the grape harvest of Abiezer, that means the grape harvest of his own clan. And he's kind of narrowing it down to say, hey, my little clan, Abiezar, just got the thing started. That's all we did in this fight. You guys got to have the real prize. You got the generals. You know. So, I mean, what did I do compared to you? So it's a little little sarcastic, you know. Uh, it's not quite the way things were, uh, maybe, but it was a wise thing to say. And they decide, well, yeah, maybe you're right, you know. And they walk off, and they're fine about that because he patted them on the head and said, look, you got the, the, the generals. I didn't get anybody. Uh, so it was a, a humble way to approach this and a good way to approach it. <clears throat> uh, the next situation, and 
there are a lot, there's a lot to be said in each of these sections, but we, we, we don't have uh, time to cover the whole chapter in detail. But uh, the, the next section has their uh, pursuit uh, for these kings, Zeba and Zalmunna. But the problem coming to these two cities is that the cities basically are siding with Midian against Gideon, okay? They're siding with the Midianites. They, they know that there's some Midianite kings still on the loose. And so they're scared to commit to support Gideon because it may come back on their heads. They're actually committing treason against the nation. And as he indicates later by the fact that they taunted him, they, they mocked him. They just disregarded him and mocked him. Who are you? Do you have the hands of these kings? You see, they would cut off the hands because, as it says in chapter 6, verse 1, the hand of Midian was uh, against them. So when you cut off the hand, which represents power, you show that you defeated the enemy. That's why the reference to their hands, a little brutal but effective, okay, in demonstrating that you've, you've won the battle. So their distrust of Gideon is rooted in their unbelief toward God. They are faithless toward God. They're rejecting Yahweh. They're not trusting in his protection. They're taking Midian as their fortress and their defense, as Israel did sometimes with Egypt and other nations, not trusting in God. So they're identifying themselves with the Moabites. They're saying, we're going to stay under the protection of the Moabites you're on your own. So it really amounted to an attack against Gideon because it could have been their, their defeat, you see. This, this could have been the very thing they needed to sustain them as it was God sustained them anyway. And they apparently got some help from some other cities. But this could have ruined them and certainly was a discouragement against them. Much like when the spies came out of the land and reported how bad things were in the land, how big the giants were, and how tall the, uh, the city walls were, etc. Well, later, Moses commenting on that said, you discouraged the people. You discouraged them from going into battle. So this was calculated. You know, you need to go home. You don't need to do this because you're probably going to fail. We don't trust that you're going to win, and we're not helping you. So this was... In, in doing so, you see, they had become the enemy in this regard. Now, I, I'm stressing this point because some commentators uh, think that Gideon is on his own and he's uh, not really being, he's not really following God at this point because God is not mentioned as much in this section. But I think this is not wise because uh, apparently in all of this, God is sustaining him to complete the job that needs to be completed, to wipe out the kings. Because if the kings are still intact, you've still got danger there, which even those cities recognize, you see. <laughs> the kings are on the loose. You know, they're going to come back. There's no, no doubt. And this was particularly effective for the Midianites when they thought, well, well, now we're secure. We're in our own land. This isn't Yahweh's territory. He can't touch us here. Bam! You know, Yahweh comes with his army, surprising them again. You could just imagine, like, cats just scattering, you know, uh, that, that they, they just couldn't believe that they were being attacked in their own safe, secure place, you know. And this apparently really did the trick. 
because as we read at the end of the passage, they never raised their heads again. Midian didn't. It was like, don't mess with these people. Don't mess with Yahweh again. So that part of it, I think, is certainly faithful. It was sacrificial. It was very, very difficult what they did, the, the, the ground that they covered to accomplish this. This is commendable in itself. And we, we learned something really important in terms of a uh, principle for us as the people of God that our, our attack against one another or lack of support for one another, our ignoring one another, disregarding one another, not being a part of God's body, refusing to really attach to the body of Christ, uh, to really get involved in the lives of God's people, to use our gifts and our time and our wealth for God's people, that's a dangerous thing. It is not looked upon with favor in God's eyes. We, we can't have these little secret relationships with God that, doesn't manif- that don't manifest themselves in real attachment to God's people and an interconnectedness with God's people and weaving in with the lives of God's people. Uh, that relationship with God means an interdependence with the people of God. It must be so. Because if you're not for him, you're against him. If you're not for his people, you're against his people. All you have to do to be against the people of God is don't do anything. <laughs> really, just don't do anything. Don't give to the church. Don't attend the church. Don't get involved in people's lives. Don't open your home and fellowship. Uh, don't use your gifts in the church. Uh, don't attend other things in the church. Just sit in a pew for you know an hour and then go home and don't bother with them again. Uh, that's, that's a good way to be against the body, against the church. So we, when we have the vow, do you promise to support the church in its work and worship to the best of your ability? That's not an empty vow. It, we don't even say, do you promise that sometimes, somehow, every once in a while, Kind of, you'll do something for us? You know, that'd be one way to ask it, wouldn't it? I mean, we're not asking for much. We just like every once in a while, tip your hat, do something, you know. But I, in a lot of churches, it seems like people think that's the basic commitment. Well, I, I'm there sometimes. I do this. I give a little bit, you know, that kind of thing. Where the the kind of pledges that our denomination uh, calls for, and we think the Word of God does in terms of our, our commitment to one another is, do you promise to support the church and its work and worship to the best of your ability? Now, that doesn't mean to the neglect of your family or the neglect of your job or other responsibilities that God has given you. We recognize those and encourage those, of course. But within that framework of your responsibility that to the best of your ability, as God enables you, that you will give yourself to His people. Now, Paul, in talking about the church, in 1 Corinthians 13, in talking about uh, destructive disunity within the body and how some were attaching themselves to Apollos and some were attaching themselves to Paul, some attached themselves to uh, Peter. Uh, it is in that context of this disunity, he says, you're acting like people that don't even know Christ. You're acting like carnal people, people of flesh. What are you doing? 
you who have been indeed sanctified, as he begins the, the letter. But he says here in 1 Corinthians uh, 3, and I'll read it in the Alabama version, Do y'all not know that y'all are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in y'all, okay, as a, as a body, all right? So he's not talking about you individually, that God dwells in you personally. He does later in 1 Corinthians 6 when he says, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. So that's true. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about y'all, okay? And then he says, in that context, and because this has been misread as your personal body, this has been read as if you commit suicide, God will destroy you. But that has nothing to do with this passage. Here's what he says then. If anyone destroys God's temple, See, if you read it as your body is the temple, that would read like if you destroy your body, then God will destroy him. But if anyone destroys God's temple, that is the church, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and y'all are that temple. So we must be careful that in no way would we hurt the body by disunity by gossip, by backbiting, by developing, uh, allowing uh, a heart of revenge or sullenness or attacking one another, not communicating with one another, these kinds of things. Uh, This is why Jesus can say in Matthew 25 that you sheep are on my right hand and you goats are on my left hand when he comes in his glory, verse 31 and following. And he says, as many of you are familiar to the sheep, you visited me when I was in prison and you clothed me when I was naked and you fed me when I was hungry and thirsty. You ministered to my needs. And, of course, they're like, when do we do that? He said, because you did it to the least of these, my brothers. And, of course, he says to the goats, you ignored all of those needs. Probably the uh, context, as we've said before, is the suffering saints under persecution. And the goats decided it would be too dangerous to get involved and to go to prison and maybe hazard the loss of your own stuff that you could even get thrown in prison. And Jesus says, that's fine. That's fine if you wanted to protect yourself. You're a goat if you do that. You're a goat, not a sheep. As he says later in Hebrews 10, the writer of Hebrews, the same kind of thing he says, you suffered the loss of your possessions. He said, you, you yourself were persecuted, but sometimes you suffered the loss because you visited those who were persecuted, and therefore you suffered the loss of your stuff. He said, and you did so joyfully because you looked to him and because you knew you had another city. You knew you had another possession that nobody could touch. Amazing statement there in Hebrews 10, which is parallel to Matthew's, 25 in that the sheep hazard their lives for one another because they can't really lose anything that they really value. Can't lose their relationship with Jesus. They can't lose the possession that Jesus has given them. And so they're free to just lose everything if need be. But I'm going to meet the needs of my brother who's in prison. I'm going to do that no matter what it costs. That's how how Jesus views unity. And You have to bear in mind this Jesus that calls us into the fellowship is the one who who has died to create this fellowship, who sacrificed himself to bring about this unity. Ephesians 2 talks about how he's brought Jew and Gentile together as one. And this is 
emblematic or a symbol of how he's brought all of us together as one through his sacrifice. And it's interesting here as Gideon is being rejected and mocked, he is sacrificing himself for the good of Succoth and Penuel. He's sacrificing himself to save them from Midian and they're mocking him in the midst of it, right? Pretty remarkable. And so Jesus sacrifices himself. He lays down his life. He gives up himself for our good. And he just expects that when his spirit, by which he did that, dwells in us, we're going to do the same thing for his brothers and sisters. That's why... In Acts 20, 28, when Paul is speaking to the elders, he says, Shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his blood. Get the point for the elders, okay? Elders, he purchased this church with his blood. You shepherd them in a like way. You show some kind of similar love to them as the shepherd did who sacrificed for you. Same thing for husbands, right, in Ephesians 5. You love your wife with something that looks like this sacrifice of love that Christ made for his church. You men are a sign and a beauty of Jesus, the glory of Jesus in your home as you lay down your lives for the good of your wives. It's just a part of our life as believers and For all of us, Christ is the pattern. He says in John 13, here's the new commandment. Love one another as I have loved you, as I've sacrificed, as I've given myself up to you. And so we love one another in this sacrificial way, losing ourselves for the sake of one another, losing our time and our gifts and our wealth for the sake of one another, just like Jesus lost everything for us. That's our glory. That's the new fellowship that he creates by his death. It's this new creation, this new world that we live in as the people of God. A glorious thing to be a part of. So when you give your life up to Christ, kind of sign it away for his people. Just sign it away and say, I'm yours. I'm yours. Take me. (laughs) Have me. Use me. Now, yes, You can be abused. You can be misused by the church. uh, People have to have boundaries, all of those kinds of things. But but that doesn't take away from this fundamental pledge that we make to one another to give ourselves uh, up to one another. Um, John says this in 1 John 3, By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But here's the application, because you might say, well, okay, if I ever have to lay down my life, I will. Okay, (laughs) That's easy to just push it aside then and say, oh, good, I don't ever have to do that, probably. But then he makes the application. But if anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? So he translates laying down your life for your brother is giving to your brother when he has need. And I would translate that into our uh, context to say, giving to the ministries of the church that, you know, the, the ministry to your youth, the ministry to your children, the ministry of Bible study and worship, the ministry to gather in those of God's people that are scattered around the world, His chosen, that have not yet been gathered. You see, you give 
for the sake of his glory and you give for the sake of his people because you love his people. You want to see his people ministered to. You want to see his people gathered in who are presently lost. Everything is for the sake and the love of the people of God. Ultimately, of course, for the love of God. But you cannot separate those two things. And as John says, he who says that he loves God but hates his brother, say, I love God but I disregard the church. Uh Uh-uh. He says, you're a liar, John says. You're a liar if you disregard God's people while you say you love God. Because your love for God will manifest itself in your love for His people. Well, that love, of course, is what brings about uh, the unity that we can enjoy as a congregation. And that love uh, causes us to be compassionate and forgiving and patient with one another, forbearing one another. And it's all built upon the salvation of Jesus. It's all built upon the new life that he has brought to us. Uh, We are told in Colossians 3 to put on this new man, to put on this new creation that has been supplied for us. And, And as we put on this new man, he says, put on compassion, put on kindness, put on humility, put on forgiveness and and bearing patiently with one another. Uh, Isn't it a privilege that we get to put these things on because Jesus has won them for us. This is part of his salvation. And we can manifest being the new people of God. So one of the issues here that we see is the, the defeat of unity because of the people of uh, their rejection of Gideon and their rejection of God and their fear of what would happen to them if they sacrifice for God's people. Are you governed by some fear in that regard? Are you governed by fear that prevents you from getting involved in God's people, either giving or participating, whatever it is? As we said a couple of weeks ago, don't let your fear of what would happen to you, if you really put yourself in God's hands, overcome your trust in God, that He's going to do good to you as you put yourself in His hands. He's going to do good to you as you commit yourself to be a part of God's people. Uh, This is all for your blessing and our blessing. Well, more can be said about the passage itself, but I want to get on to the second part, which is the defeat of leadership. And you begin to think there's a, a problem in verses 18 and following where all of a sudden we hadn't heard anything about this. Okay, not a word about this. But as he's about to put Zeba and Zalmunna to death, he says, okay, where are the men that you killed at Tabor? Apparently, his blood brothers, and this is what he's talking about here, his blood brothers were murdered in some way, and, and most people think outside of a battle context, just viciously murdered, you know, assassinated maybe. And... You you had no idea up to this point that this was something churning in Gideon's heart. You just think he's he's going after these kings, and probably he was, just as the leader of God's people and the judge of completing this work that God had given him to do. But something else is boiling, and now it really comes to the surface. In fact, it seems to take over everything else as he talks about it. Because he actually says to them, if you hadn't killed my brothers, I would let you live. 
really? Like all that they did to Israel for seven years, destroying cops, crops, making people flee to the hills, killing who knows how many people, that was nothing to you. But here's the bad thing you did. You kill my brothers and you're going to have to pay for that. You know, it's kind of the feel you get here. So you've become more important than everything else in Israel. And here's likely the beginning of the hint that Gideon is looking at himself as a kingly figure, okay? A kingly figure, which, jumping ahead to verse 23, makes this statement suspicious. I will not rule over you. My son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. This sounds so noble, doesn't it? So committed in word that only, oh look, only God will rule over you. It is the Lord that I'm committed to. It's the Lord's ways that I'm committed to. And yet so much about this seems to be against what he says. And this is a pretty strong consensus with almost, well, every, every commentator that I've, I've dealt with here. That something was really falling apart here at the end for Gideon. The, uh, the fact that he is treating the deaths of his brothers as kind of like royal assassinations that deserve blood vengeance. And it takes the place of everything. And if it hadn't been for that, I'd let you go free. He may be saying that for a fact to try to really hurt them at the end to say, okay, I'm just going to drive this home. If you hadn't killed my brothers, you wouldn't get killed, which makes them all the more feel, you know, guilty about that and wish they hadn't done that. But even if that's the case, why would you say something like this? Why would you make this the whole issue suddenly uh, as he does? The second thing he does is he calls... Jether, his firstborn, to rise and kill them. This is probably an indication of his desire to create some kind of dynasty and to make his son appear king-like in their eyes. And he's overstepping his boundary here because his son was so young and so scared, he couldn't even do it. That's probably a way to humiliate the kings, like when Jael, the woman, drove the stake through Sisera's head that was a humiliation. You got killed by a woman, you know. We, we've said that a lot of times, right? You got beat by a girl. <laughs> a lot of times it can't be like, there, there's so many women that can outrun me now, you know, it's not even funny, you know. <laughs> um, but that's what we say, and certainly was a part of their society. And, and this would have been humiliating for this youth to kill them, but he couldn't do it. So, Though the former enemies had been humiliated in this way, this is another indication that something's not right. He was not humiliated in this way. And Gideon had to back off and kill them himself. But there seems to be this uh, desire to put his son up uh, to as dynastic uh, king. And then, even though there's this unequivocal rejection of kingship... The facts just don't match it because he begins to collect this gold, creating something like a royal treasury here. Uh, and this is a thing forbidden in Deuteronomy 18 of, of kings. Uh, and then he claims the, the symbols of the kings of Midian uh, you, that you see in verse 26. And he collects those. Those become symbols of his kingship, it seems to be. And then like a king, he holds, uh, he, he takes hold of the worship. 
And he makes his own town the worship center, which is kind of like to make his town the capital uh, in that regard. Um, and he apparently assembles a family, and we read uh, later, and he has 70 children and many wives. And this indicates that he was looking at himself as a king, kind of like a royal harem here and all. And then his son is named Abimelech. Abi, my father, Melech is king. My father is king. One of his sons is named my father is king. So there's a lot of evidence here that seems that he said that he doesn't want to be king, but he, he didn't want to like openly admit it. He didn't want to openly, you know, sound so cocky and prideful that I would be king. And yet he seems to be attracted to this whole idea. Kind of like the funny thing you've seen people when people are applauding and they say, don't stop, <laughs> don't stop, don't stop, you know. <clears throat> and that's kind of what he's doing here. Don't make me king. Stop. Don't stop from making me king. Let me do it. <clears throat> And we've seen, sadly, those within the very body of Christ who uh, claim humility, claim that everything is for the glory of God alone, but just the way they carry themselves, the way they prance up and down the stage, the, the special privileges they expect, the way they treat people, the way they talk about themselves, and in some cases, the very way they engage in rampant sin and their use of money or their participation in illicit sex, thinking, I deserve this. All the while, though, if you ask them, oh, they're the humble servants of God. A shameless thing that happens within of those that name the name of Christ. And Ralph Davis says, It is ever our danger that after being used of God in some way, we mouth humility, but we practice pride. Right? And of course, the centerpiece of what he's done wrong here is this ephod. Uh, the ephod is this sleeveless tunic that's made of costly materials and it has a a breastplate that had the 12 stones uh, that represented Israel. And then it had these two stones called Uman and Thuman. And those were used to find direction from God, the, the original ephod that the priest had. And you can see evidence in Scripture of the use of this for that reason. And so it appears that what Gideon is doing is he's creating an alternative way of channeling Yahweh's guidance in addition to the priest and that's at the tabernacle with the ephod. So this is an alternative form of God directing his people. And it even has the look, look, here's an ephod to show that I'm not going to be king, God's going to be king, but the whole thing was false. The whole thing means that I'm in control of this new revelation, of this new form of knowing God's will. And, and Gideon was the very one who set it up. Here now we have a leader, the first leader who's instituted idolatry to the, for, the, for the nation. And here is uh, the beginning of the twisting out in Judges. We talked about this, of how Judges is going to talk about the unraveling of the people of God, the downward spiral of rejection of Yahweh. 
And here is one of the sad, really sad events that he would introduce this ephod that that they prostituted themselves before and became a snare. This this word snare is is used again and again when he says, take away the idols of the, of the land because they will be a snare for you, meaning they will capture you. They will own your affections. They will have your allegiance. Now, he has introduced the snare. Uh, his whole household is engaged in this. Now, much more could be said, but I want to close with just some application. How, how, how do we deal with this thing? First of all... Uh, don't put your confidence ever in leaders, okay? Don't ever put your confidence in leaders. Now, by God's grace, we won't have this kind of failure in our leadership. But what do you do? We, we tend to get cynical when leaders fail. Uh, true believing leaders have failed, and they will fail. Uh, but we have to always say our faith is in God Especially our faith is in the only one who is our true leader, and that is Jesus Christ. Every other Savior, every other king, all the kings and saviors of the Old Testament are riddled with uh, sin and failure. And it is to point us always to the one true, holy, godly man, and that is Jesus Christ, as our only Savior. Uh, so that's one thing here that... that uh, that is underscored for us that we, we, we depend on no refuge ultimately but God himself. And so if we have gone through failed leadership in churches, it's very easy to get demoralized, disheartened. It's easy to say, I'm through with the church because of what's happened in leadership. But the Bible's really, the Bible's not, uh, not uh, reluctant to set before us, look, leaders are going to fail. And Gideon is listed as a man of faith in Hebrews 11. I sometimes think, why did you put him there? (laughs) Okay, but it wasn't up to me. It was up to God and his perfect knowledge that this was a true man of faith, a man who believed God and did mighty acts for God, and yet who had massive failure at the end of his life. So we must never put confidence in leaders. We must always, therefore, be praying for our leaders. Any one of us can fall at any time. We're, our, our unity as a church can fail at any time. We're entirely dependent upon God's grace. And we must never forget that. Paul talks about this in his own life in 1 Timothy one and said, you know why God had mercy on me? So that he could display his perfect patience as an example to those who would believe in him. He said, so that they could think, God must really, really be patient if Paul is an apostle because <laughs> he persecuted the church. And if you're visiting here, here are a bunch of exhibits A of God's perfect patience that any one of us is here because we all were dead in our sins. We all were against God, and God miraculously has brought us to himself and changed our hearts. We're exhibits of God's amazing, amazing patience. There are no perfect leaders. There are no perfect pastors, elders, deacons, none of us. I remember one of my friends, Mike Howell, at our RYM uh, seminar one time saying, 
You know what I want? Here's what I want. He's a pastor. I want to be the greatest preacher in the world. And I said, amen, brother. (laughs) And you probably think, well, surely no pastor would think that. You should be thinking, surely every pastor probably has thought that, you know. We all suffer. We all struggle with, with motives. Uh, none of us. All of us are scarred with the pockmarks of sin. All of us still limp. All of us have a brokenness that is only going to be held up by God's grace, and it's only going to be finally removed in the last day. It's just, that's just the case. It's just the way it is. We're helpless, broken people. But this is what makes us attractive in God's eyes to be used in the lives of other helpless, broken people. Look what God did in this person's life, in this person. Look look how he's sustaining this weak person. God can do that for you as well. He picks people in the storm to help other people in the storm. As Paul says, we have this treasure, the treasure of the glory of Christ, in jars of clay. Well, uh, there are other things to be said. I, I'm just going to mention uh, this idea of the ephod. We have a lot of ephods around, uh, a lot of alternative things. I, I think of Jeremy Lelick presenting his biblical counseling to a evangelical seminary, to their counseling department. And he wasn't literally booed, but for all practical purposes, he was. You know why? Because he was setting forth counseling based on the Bible. And that whole department was given over to something else than that, okay, to secular uh, counseling. You have this in the cults. You have this when the Catholic Church says that the Pope can declare that Mary uh, was born without sin, or that Mary was resurrected after three days when she died and went up into heaven bodily. doesn't matter if it's in the Word of God. He declares it to be so. It is so. You have this in churches that so distort the Word of God that people who suffer in this world and cling to Jesus Christ and manifest the glory that Jesus is sufficient for their needs can be attacked as those that do not have faith because they don't have health and wealth. That's an ephod, okay? And people are bowing down to it. We must always, always be called to the Word of God and the Word of God alone and beware of any kind of ephod That's one of the reasons we preach through all of Judges, we preach through James, we've taught through Revelation, we've taught through Hebrews, we taught through Romans. We try to teach that way so we're not just picking and choosing, but we just say, whatever he says in Romans, we're going to teach it. Whatever he says in Judges, we're going to teach it. That's our effort at least, not to make up stuff, but to have everything based upon the Word of God. Well, let us pray. Lord, we... We pray that you would keep us from disunity, keep us from leadership that would lead your people astray, that would not be focused upon your word, that would focus on its own greatness as though there were any. 
that would not be humble and broken before you. Oh, Lord, keep us all clinging as leaders, as a body. To the grace of Jesus Christ, we ask this in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. Jesus, my Lord, my life, my light, oh, come with blissful rain, break radiant through the shades of night and chase my fears away, won't you chase my fears away?